0: After high school, I spent two years working on a mission ship. And when I first arrived, there were many things that fascinated me because I'd never been to sea before. But one thing I remember that had an impact on me that I thought was impressive was the anchor of the ship. First of all, the anchor was much bigger than I had imagined. And yet, at the same time, in comparison to the size of the ship itself, the anchor seemed relatively small. The anchor is attached to the ship by a long chain and each link of that chain was about this big and I don't remember the exact weight, but I think each link weighed about eight kilos. One of the the deck officers on board the ship told me that when the anchor is dropped onto the seafloor, the crew also sends out several additional lengths of the chain, which will also rest on the seafloor, helping hold the ship in place while on board, I learned the importance of the anchor. I had thought that in these modern days of combustion engines and huge turbines, that the anchor would not be that essential on a modern day ship. But I was wrong. The anchor keeps a ship in harbor secure. It keeps its bow always pointing into the waves. Because if large waves hit a ship, on its side it can capsize the ship especially smaller ships like the one that I was serving on. If a ship accidentally slips its anchor or if that chain breaks the ship is helpless before the power of wind and waves and again even in in these days of you know internal combustion engines and and these massive turbines that drive ships once a ship begins moving in a certain direction whether by current or waves or wind it takes a long time to get the engines running again and, and with enough power and time to actually change the direction of the ship and bring it under control. And even these huge cruise ships and oil tankers, if they begin to drift, even slowly, they can cause untold damage to themselves and other shipping because once something that big gets moving in a direction, it's very hard to change that direction or to slow it down. A ship in a harbor without an anchor can be a devastating force. 1 John 4.8 states clearly and unequivocally a truth that in many ways has been cheapened by appearing on too many bumper stickers and wall plaques. It's even the name of a megachurch here in Brazil. What is this truth? God is love deus amor this truth states that it's not only that God loves or that he understands love or that he is good at loving God is love his very being defines it and any understanding or definition or enacting of love has to be must be anchored in God. The world appreciates the idea of love, right? It sounds nice. It's a nice word. The world values it. They suggest that love should be free. And as I've said many times before, love provides the topic for the vast majority of popular songs ever written, probably dating back to the early 20s, I'm guessing. To consider the issue of music for a moment, there, there's the song, of course, as I've sung for you before, which I will not do this morning, All You Need Is Love. That's a great sentiment. All You Need Is Love. But, and, and that holds love in high regard. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you have songs like What's Love Got to Do With It? Or Love Bites by Def Leppard. Or You Give Love a Bad Name by Bon Jovi. So, yeah, okay, yes, I grew up in the 80s. Any <laughs> doubts? Okay, thank you. Now... These songs can have such different perspectives on love because they have slipped the anchor that keeps love moored to its source. And the world has attempted to understand and define love apart from God, which is absolutely impossible. And yet when this happens, the concept of love becomes like a ship without an anchor that's bobbing about on the tidal waves of history, running at the mercy of current and wind, crushing things that get in its way without direction and without purpose. So as we consider love today, our task is to go back to basics. How do God's being and action define love? Because it's, in the Advent story, you can read it, the word love is notably absent. Joy is there, hope is there, love is not there as a word. And yet... The entire account is bathed in the love of God. So today we're going to examine one of the best known, most often quoted, most recognizable verses of scripture to find the meaning of this word. And yes, it was read for you twice this morning. The same passage. I don't know how many of you were awake enough to catch that. But that's intentional. That's intentional. We need to have that driven home to us. So what's the specific verse of which I'm speaking? John 3.16. John 3.16. If you are confident enough in your memory, you can recite it with me, and I know that there are probably different versions in which you've memorized it, and even if you want to say it in Portuguese, you can, but we're going to say it together now, okay? For God so loved the world, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life, or everlasting life, if you memorized it in the King James as I originally did. The first phrase of this verse states that God so loved. And that, that, that two-word phrase, so loved, can have two meanings or two interpretations. The first is a a meaning of degree or intensity. So if we were to use it in that sense, we would say God loved the world so much that he gave his son. But the second understanding is one of method. This is how God loved the world. And that second one is probably closer to John's intent. In other words, he's saying this is how God loved the world. Not so much intensity, God loved the world so much, but this is how, a demonstration. And if we ask the question, how did God love the world? The answer immediately follows. He sent his only son. And that verb sent is of utmost importance. Because it unveils the fundamental truth that God's love is revealed in action. The verse does not read, God so loved the world that He felt a great passion for the world. But rather, God so loved the world that He gave His Son. If our understanding of love is limited to just emotion, passion or feeling we're going to fall far short of God's love God gave his son the supreme act of love by which love itself is defined and this giving of his son the life of Jesus on earth that we're remembering and celebrating during Advent and at Christmas this giving of his son is bracketed by two events each one illustrated by a powerful symbol, a manger and a cross. The manger associated with Christ's birth and the cross with His death. And together, these symbols reveal more of God's love. Think about the manger for a moment. The bed, the first bed of the Christ child. I remember when when Julie and I first moved back to Brazil in 2002 Ethan was four months old and we didn't have a crib we didn't bring a crib with us from the US so we went crib shopping here um, you know what one of the first thing we realized about cribs here in Brazil they're very expensive very very expensive the other those of you who are young parents here you're, you're nodding yes yes you know what I'm and you have many many options and each one is a little fancier than the others. You know, and, and part of you is thinking, all we need is a simple bed for our child. But then on the other side, you're thinking, but we we want to honor our child. We want people to know that we value our child. We want our child to have, you know, the, the, the Lexus of cribs. <laughs> and it's interesting that when the father chose the first crib for his son. It was a place from which animals ate. And today, if if you went into someone's home and saw that they had, you know gotten a, a large, I don't even know if such things exist, you know, like a really large dog feeding bowl and put their baby in there to sleep, you would kind of look at them going, questioning either their sanity or their love, but not the Father. The manger symbolizes for us today the humility of the love of God. Jesus was born into human flesh as a helpless baby. Surely that would have been That that would have been humble enough, right? That already was an incredible act of humility. He could have been born then into the family of an emperor or a king with much greater comfort and luxury, but God in his love chose the humility of a manger. His parents, you, you, you all know this, I'm not telling you anything new. Jesus' parents were a carpenter and a teenage girl condemned by society for pregnancy outside of marriage. And friends, humility is not weakness. Humility is not low self-esteem. Humility is not groveling. Nor is humility to falsely reject one's gifting and one's abilities. Humility is having a realistic perspective on one's own strengths and weaknesses. That's the first step of humility. So that we're realistic. Is there something you're good at? Humility doesn't deny that. Humility accepts and acknowledges that, yes, I, I am good at this, but it also acknowledges where that talent came from. It came from God. It's a gift from Him. It also, humility is also honest about our own failings and our own weaknesses, our own propensity towards sin. And then, with those proper understandings and perspectives, humility then seeks the good of the other person before one's own good. Now note that I said the good of others. Not just the happiness of others. Because the humility of love does not just give the other everything the other wants. But it is concerned with the true good and best for the other. Why would God do this? Why would He send His Son in humility? Okay, here's a spoiler alert. That's not going to be a spoiler for any of you. The end of the verse. Jesus humbled himself according to the will of the Father, ultimately so that everyone who believes in him would have eternal life. That's why. That is the goal of the humility of God's love. That it would bless his creation. That it would bless his people. That it would bless the the creatures that he had formed that those that would come to Him would receive eternal life. And this is why God displays His love through humility. Now, the second symbol that brackets the sending of Jesus is the cross. And in popular culture today, the cross has lost much of its true significance. Now, please understand, I'm not saying the cross has lost its meaning, because the cross is imbued with meaning by God, but it has lost its significance in popular culture. Because it's freely tattooed on the bodies of profane people and believers alike. It's worn around the neck as an ornament or as a good luck charm, but also as a reminder for some of truth. It's hung on the walls of churches and it's also scrawled in graffiti on the walls of abandoned buildings. And it hangs from the rearview mirrors in hundreds, if not thousands, of taxis and Ubers. Now, I'm not arguing or suggesting that we not focus on the cross as a symbol. We should. I'm only trying to illustrate how it has, to, to much of society, it no longer carries the impact of its true meaning. Consider this for a moment. The cross is one of the cruelest methods of execution ever devised by humanity. Shouldn't it be a little shocking to us that, It's treated so cavalierly or lightly. In his classic novel of the French Revolution, Charles Dickens describes the attitudes of the revolutionaries toward the guillotine. And he he writes that the revolutionaries loved the guillotine and what it stood for so much that they began to make small replicas to wear around their necks. Now, when I read that for the first time in high school, I was Kind of shocked and taken aback. Really wear a guillotine around your neck? How gruesome. I think Dickens was actually pointing out something that had been lost even in his day. The power, but also the suffering of the cross. We're shocked that people would wear a guillotine around their neck. But we have no problem. It gives us no pause for people to wear a cross. Today, if someone were to wear a gun on a necklace around their their, their necks or to have a gun tattooed on their chest or forearm, many people would attack them for that. They would rail against them for that because a gun is associated with so many as a form of violence and death. Why is the cross different? As ironic as it may sound, a sign of the profound cruelty and violence of humanity has become the symbol of the greatest act of love that will ever be. John is also often referred to as the Apostle of love. So much of his writings both in his Gospel and then in in Revelation and also his, his three epistles deal directly with love. And in chapter 15 Verse 13 of his gospel, John writes that greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the highest definition of love, the laying down of one's life for the good and the life of another. That's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He laid down his life, though, not only for his friends, but for all of humanity who had rejected him. Greater love has no one than this. If the manger is a symbol of humility, then the cross is the symbol of sacrifice. Putting the good of others above our own requires sacrifice because it goes against every grain of sinful, fallen human nature. So we we recited together John 3.16. It's interesting that 1 John 3.16 also deals with love. And in that context, John writes, this is how we know what love is. Okay, listen, we're talking about love, we're talking about its definition, we're talking about its anchor in the person of God, and John's putting it as explicitly as he can. This is how we know what love is. So you want to know what love is? Here it is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So there we have it in a nutshell, the definition of love. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ for humanity. That's what Jesus has done. So how do we respond to this love? Because the benefit, the outcome desired by God is that those who believe in Him would have eternal life. Those who believe that Jesus came in humility, that those who believe that Jesus came in sacrifice, would come to trust His sacrifice Trust Him, believe in Him, and receive eternal life. How do we respond to that love? Because it elicits a response. 1 John 4.10 says this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. So remembering that God is the initiator. All love begins with Him. And God has come in Christ in His love, sacrificing to be Emmanuel, God with us. He has sacrificed to live with us here and still with us by His Spirit so that ultimately we may live with Him. So, as I've done at times in the past, I briefly want to address two groups that are here this morning. The first of those groups is those of you who have never said yes to the love of God. If you've never said yes to the love of God, that means that, as of right now, you do not have what the Bible calls eternal life, what Jesus says in John 3.16. Another book that John wrote is the book of Revelation, a prophetic book. And in chapter 3, verse 20 of Revelation, John gives us, he writes about this image of Jesus standing at the door of a home. And the image that he's using there is that that home is like the human heart. And Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. In ancient Near Eastern understanding, the concept of the shared meal is a sign of intimacy and relationship. And so Jesus stands at the door of each heart and he knocks. And he says, if you'll let me in, another way we could say that is if you will receive my love, if you will accept the humility and the sacrifice of my life, my birth and death then on the cross, if you'll accept that for yourself, I will come in and eat with you. It's interesting, though, that 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 image does not portray Jesus as a home intruder. I've said this before. He's not going to force his way in. He's not going to batter down the door and insist on sharing that meal. No, he offers. So, if you've never before said yes to the love of God, I want to invite you today to do that. To say yes to the love of God means, first of all, acknowledging that you need it. Acknowledging that you need to be loved by God because of what we call sin. Because we're broken. Because sin has so perverted our minds, our bodies, our souls, our spirits, everything about us, that we are broken beyond repair. So we have to be renewed, made new. And that's the offer of Jesus Christ on the cross. That His death takes the place of the penalty for our sin. If we believe Him if we accept that, if we surrender to his love, then then his sacrifice pays our debt. Now, I want to talk to another group of you. Those of you that would probably refer to yourselves as Christians or believers, you have already said your first yes to the love of God. You have admitted your sin and you have accepted Christ's sacrifice in your place. You know, we can't love God back or love anyone else with God's love until we receive His love first. And often we ourselves are the greatest barriers to receiving that love because we try to earn it. And when you try to earn something that you already have, it's exhausting and it's pointless and it's purposeless. So imagine that Jesus physically lives in your home. So just take a minute, engage your imagination, and picture him physically there in your home. Because you've invited him in. But once you've invited him in, you spend all your time rushing around the house serving him. Which is a good thing to do. But you're constantly cleaning his room and bleaching his bathroom and preparing meals and washing dishes and doing his laundry. And the whole time you're thinking, I hope he will love me because of how hard I'm trying to please him. And perhaps the entire time Jesus is saying to you, would you stop for a moment and let me love you? You don't have to earn it. I'm not going to love you more if you clean my bathroom again. (laughs) We try to earn God's love and we don't realize that he's already given it to us. In fact, we're incapable of loving him if he didn't love us first. We talk about surrender. I've talked about that a lot over Advent. And that's a very important concept, but I want you to think of it in a different way this morning. I want to think of surrender in terms of surrendering to the love of God or surrendering to being loved by Him. Not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, not because you're a really good person, not because you've done more good things than bad things, but simply because you have opened the door to Jesus and He has come in to your life. To love you. To be quiet before Him. And I know that's a hard thing to do at this time of year. To be quiet at all ever when you're awake. But taking the time to not strive, not do, not worry, but simply to be in the presence of God and to revel in His love. Because our love back to Him and our love to others must flow first out of His love for us. So that begins by receiving. God so loved the world that He sent His Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but would have eternal, everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, you know that even we often, as your children, lose our anchor of love. And we are so easily tempted to embrace the varying worldly definitions of love as niceness, or love as letting everyone do whatever they want to do. And forgetting, Lord, how costly your love for us was and is. Lord, this morning we receive your humility in love. We receive your sacrifice in love. And we are grateful. And we rejoice that you loved us first and that you showed us concretely your love in the manger and on the cross. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.